Hello, Hoop World. Do you ever wish you could find time to read more? Audiobooks can help you read more while living your life. And no one has more audiobooks than Audible. Right now, I'm listening to Basketball and Other Things by Shea Serrano. Shea is a super intelligent basketball writer who puts a modern spin on the game we all love. And Basketball and Other Things is the quintessential companion read for basketball fans. You can download it for free as part of the free Audible trial. Get 30 days for free with New Bloods at audibletrial.com slash newbloods. That's audibletrial.com slash newbloods. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E-T-R-I-A-L.com slash N-E-W-B-L-O-O-D-S. Hey, Hoop fans. How would you like to get a 125% sign-up bonus for up to $2,500? Join BetUS with promo code NEWBLOODS. That's N-E-W-B-L-O-D-S at BetUS.com, where the game begins. What is up, hoopers, analytics, bag guys, bucket getters, boosters, blue bloods, and new bloods? On today's episode, we talk zags and the pros, what ifs, and those blasted dookies. All right, joining us today, we got uh, thoughts and prayers to your favorite player, Pete Alonzo, tonight. Valiant effort, but Julio is just too much. Welcome aboard, Connor Hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? Future Matt Juan Soto won it all, so. (laughs) (laughs) All I got to say is Julio! (laughs) And uh, the man, the myth, and the maestro, it's Stephen Carr. It's actually future giant Juan Soto. <laughs> you know, sell the I, farm, baby. Sell the farm. If if the Mariners wanted to get Juan Soto and uh, compete for World Series, it would be fun, but it would also be incredibly dumb to mortgage like I don't know, fifteen of the best players in the farm system. All right. Yeah. <laughs> So I want to start off today's show talking kind of a little bit about an idea that somebody brought up on uh, Twitter.com recently, and that was what if these rumors of Sankey from the SEC trying to screw with the NCAA tournament are true, but what if they did something like, I don't know, made the second and, and third weekends double elimination format instead of... Uh, the existing single elimination format we know and love. Um, obviously, that would change, you know, the parameters of how long the NCAA tournament would be. But um, would you think, in your opinion, Connor, do you think something like that could potentially lead to the best team in the tournament every year winning or or make it more likely? Are we, are we talking double elimination as in a, a three-game series or double elimination as in what they do in the regionals and super regionals of the NCAA tournament for baseball? That, that's a good question. Obviously, the NCAA would have to figure out the specifics of it. I would think that it would be first team to lose two games would be out. So the best out of three series. But then again, you know, it, it could be something similar to where it's like a, a group uh, pairing and you kind of like, you know, mess with the whole format i don't know it's it's an interesting parameter to kind of mess with in your mind because it really drastically affects how we know the NCAA tournament you know what we've come become used to over the last 30 years 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you were going to do that, you'd have to go best out of three. Um, there's just no way, especially if you're not doing it in the first round, to then implement it, especially once you get to the final four and and national championship game. Um, I think what it does do as well, especially for those last two rounds, is you might have to spread it over two weekends. Um, the the NCAA is going to want that TV money, and, and there's a reason why they host the final four on a Saturday and then host the national championship game for both basketball and football late on a Monday. And that's because that's where those are the two time slots that make the most sense for the games they have to play. And if you're playing a best two out of three, my guess is then you have to go to probably a Friday, Saturday, Sunday um, format for both of those final four and, and national championship. Honestly, I don't think it happens. I don't like the idea because then you lose the value of, you know, you lose that UNC Villanova finish. Like that's just the finish for the first of three games. And it's not, you know, Chris Jenkins making that buzzer beater three on the other end to win the national championship. And obviously you can get that in a three game uh, series. And, and especially if the series goes three games. Um, but if it's, you know, one team truly outmatching another or, you know, a, a game that, you know, goes kind of mediocre for three rounds or three games, especially if that first game is great and the next two are mediocre. I think it lessens the impact. Um, I do think that there is worry and concern that they might start to leave out the, the lower level, low major teams, but does having, you know, double elimination fix that? I, I, I just don't know if that's a, a feasible, a, a feasible uh, idea, but B, whether it actually will help, you know, it might help make the better teams win um, more often, but is that really why we watch the NCAA tournament? I mean, from a, from a fan perspective, that would be, I, I don't want it messed with at all. I don't think any of us really would like this. I think we like the format as is. Um, I don't even think I want to see more teams added at this point. Like, I feel like 68 is enough. Like we, we have this bubble conversation every year, but if you add, if you make it a larger format tournament, you're still going to have a bubble conversation regardless of how many teams you add in. There's always going to be a team that feels like they're on the edge and they could have got in, but they didn't. In your opinion, Stephen, what do you feel like if, if they do mess with the format of the NCAA tournament, is there anything we could do to appease somebody like Sankey or any of the other conference commissioners and keep some of these low major teams in? Because I, I feel like the, part of the love we have for the tournament is that upset potential in that first weekend. Yeah, for sure. And I don't really have a whole lot more to add than what Connor said. He kind of hit all the points on the head. I, I think that the tournament is, it's the most perfect sporting event in the world. And I don't think that they should really change much. If anything, it should go the opposite way where they let more mid majors in as a, on, on the bubble, as opposed to, um, you know, middle tier big 10 teams and stuff like that. And especially if we get into like these super conferences and if these happen in basketball as well, if there's like a 20 team conference taking like the 13th or 14th team from a conference, who's like seven and 12 in a conference over a mid-major team, who's arguably as good, if not better. Um, I think that makes the tournament even worse um, so yeah, there's going to be a lot of 
discussions as we go down these conference realignment paths, but I, I, I have a hard time believing that there's going to be any drastic change to the tournament itself, just because it's just, it's a longstanding history of it all. And it's going to take, I mean, obviously money is the, is the deciding factor in everything, but I think it's going to take more than just money um, for there to be massive drastic changes, like a double elimination format or adding, you know, 128 teams instead of 64 or 68, whatever it is. Um, I think it's going to stay the same for the foreseeable future. And And jumping off Steven's point, I think that's going to be something that I'm expecting to happen with regards to the super conferences is when you have these 20 to 24 team conferences, if they reach that size, some of these teams that are in the middle of those conferences that maybe even in the old format, don't make it into the tournament when they have the same record or the same relative resume as a lot of the other teams in the middle of their conferences, you might just naturally see some of these uh, mid-major bubble teams fall off. You know, you might not get a San Francisco in the tournament and that might be, I mean, while that's not something we want, that in and of itself might be enough to satisfy the high major teams, knowing that preference is going to be given to some of these conferences that are loaded, um, especially, you know, if we see more consolidation uh, with basketball schools, but also the Big 12 and the Pac-12, um, the ACC getting split up, like we're going to see a lot of these teams in much more competitive conferences. And you're going to have to have that conversation about even though a San Francisco might be better than them or, or a Dayton might be better than them. <laughs> Does the fact that they play such a tough schedule um, not necessarily count in their favor, but you know you take that into account when you're counting the negatives against them? And you could you could get to a point where essentially all these mid-major conferences are relegated to just one bid, no matter what, and the rest of the school or the rest of the teams come from those power conferences or mega conferences, however they end up going. Um, but then at that point, the mid-major conferences are going to have to discuss hey, if we're only going to get one bid, how do we want to select that one bid? And that's a completely different discussion. Is it based on regular season? Do they want to just eliminate conference tournaments? Uh, Are they going to go kind of the route that the WAC is going this year, where they've got their own formula that's based, uh, that kind of bases their seating for the conference tournament? Like there's a lot of different routes that that could go to. Um, If the committee decides, hey, all mid-major conferences um, are only one bid. And at that point too, you have to determine what is a mid-major conference. Like, does the Mountain West only get one bid? Does the WCC only get one bid? Because to me, those are, I guess they're mid-major conferences, but they're better than what you would consider a mid-major conference. So a lot of discussions would have to happen at that point too. Yeah, I, I feel like the the problem to and really at the end of the day, I think this is the same issue that we're going to see with, with realignment with for college football they're taking away the things that make collegiate athletics so much more special, so more, much more unique than professional athletics. Um, you know, the things like regional rivalries, the, or in the case of the NCAA tournament, just the, the, the lore that surrounds these small, tiny schools coming and giving, you know, big, the big Goliath, you know, Kentucky's or Kansas's of the world's run in that first weekend if we don't have a chance to see a team like St. Peter's punch a ticket to an elite eight or Florida Gulf coast, or you name it, like what, what at that point is, is the point of 
the NCAA tournament, you're going to lose value, I feel like, because the reason why so many people watch is not because of the big schools, while they have great fan bases and all. It's because so many people suddenly find it intriguing that anybody has a chance in that first weekend. And you're talking about a multi-billion dollar um, you know, athletic event that suddenly could be worth less because the TV ratings plummet, you know, in years. Tuck, I, I was going to ask you, in your opinion, do you see any reality where that where the NCAA tournament does change? Or do you think that like like Stephen, Connor, and myself, that we probably are not going to head towards too much change um, in, for the format of the tournament going forward? I, I just don't know what the entire purpose would be because at that point, You've all, the damage has already been done. I would think that the number one thing that the committee would want to avoid is those mid-major darlings potentially hurting um, the the level of play later in the tournament. So at that point, a single elimination tournament. I I I I mean, outside of Matt Painter, I don't know what other coach would allow St. Peter's to do what St. Peter said. Sorry, Connor. But in a lot of ways, I just feel like ultimately, I don't understand what the preventative measures would really help by making it a best of series that far into the tournament at that point. I feel like we know who is who at that level by then. And the teams that are hot are going to stay hot, no matter if it's a best of three or a, or a best of one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, ultimately, I think when I brought up that idea, I think really what I was getting at was, could this be a way to push off the the bigger schools, the bigger conferences and say, well, hey, if we give you this to appease you, can we can we at least keep our first weekend where upsets can happen? Yeah, and, and it'll be interesting to see because we've been talking about the bubble and the low majors. It'll be interesting to see, too, what happens to the top, you know, the fact that you're in some smaller conferences, um, you can get the buildup of some of these Goliaths. You can get the Kansas or Baylor. You can get the Zion Williamson Duke team, where if they go from playing an 18 game schedule in their conference to playing a 20 to 22 game schedule in a tougher conference and not necessarily changing conferences, but just the composition of the conferences makes it tougher. You know, you might not have these teams that are built up as Goliaths. Um, and does that in itself change the nature of that first weekend where, cause, cause you said people don't watch for the Goliaths. They do. They don't watch necessarily for them to win, but they're, you bet your ass they were watching that Kentucky game, hoping that Kentucky would lose, right? You bet that they were watching that North Carolina Baylor game because North Carolina was playing the underdog every game, it seems like they're watching Gonzaga, hoping Gonzaga loses. Right. So you're watching these Goliaths, you're watching these top teams, hoping they're losing, which I guess to their point, they're the ones bringing the eyes. But if you get rid of that foil, if you get rid of that, the reason people want them to lose, you know, I think their point is a little bit moot, but it'll be interesting to see how, these Goliaths get built up because obviously if you run through the big 10 or the sec in the future, it's going to be a bigger deal than it is now. Um, but the opportunities or the capability to do those things and run through those conferences also decreases with the competition. One last thing for me. Um, if we do get these mega conferences and teams are playing, you know, 24 game conference schedules, essentially they get, 
six, maybe seven non-conference games. So essentially you're, once you get into the tournament, it's the same teams playing the same teams that we already saw earlier in the year. Like there's no diversity anymore. And I think that's one of the special things about non-conference play and about the tournament is that you can see teams that don't play each other ever. If you're just going to get big 10 schools playing sec or big 10 playing whoever that have already played twice during the season, it's like, I'm, I'm tired of this. It's, it's like watching Alabama Clemson four years in a row. Great quality football, but I would like some spice in my life. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Parity in college athletics is also something that, I mean, especially in college basketball, it's, it's, there's something beautiful about being able to watch, you know, a program like Gonzaga rise from nothing to something, um, you know, and, and to kind of change paces towards that non-conference conversation a little bit with the news that Duke agreed to a home and home with Arizona um, today, is it, time for the Zags to maybe pounce on this new scheduling precedence that the Dukies have set and, and lock up a home and home with those blasted blue devils. Tuck, you go ahead and take it. I mean, uh, why not? <laughs> I think ultimately if they're willing to play home and home, you, you take every opportunity you can, especially as your, uh, it, it, one of the biggest benefactors from scheduling non-conference games at this point, when you're uh, one of the the odd pieces out in the non-conference re- or the conference realignment conversation, um, I I think that ultimately, if you can schedule a great home and home matchup, that's that's wonderful. I'm curious what your guys' thoughts are in general, all three of you, about does it really mean more for a team in uh, their chances in the tournament if they win? in a hostile environment versus one of these uh, preseason tournaments or preseason classics? I'm going to jump on this and say that I think the scheduling that Alabama and Gonzaga did over the this last year and this upcoming year is brilliant. It's essentially a home and home, but if you lose at home, at home it doesn't hurt you as much because it's a neutral site game by the resume. And if you win on the road, it still matters because it's still a neutral site game over a supposed top 20, top 25 team minimum. Um, And so you're still getting the benefits kind of of playing that road game in both directions um, at a neutral site game. But you have the added bonus of having that environment where you're playing in Birmingham against Alabama. It's going to be almost all Alabama fans. And you're playing that game in Seattle against Gonzaga you know, unless it's Washington, you're going to have all Gonzaga fans. So, you know, I, I just think that I like that scheduling a little bit more. And the other thing I, I have in response to Josh's original question is what is Duke's opinion of McCarthy? Because there is a big difference in size and not necessarily atmosphere, but size and just total number of people between McHale Center and McCarthy. And so, I mean, that was one of the issues in scheduling with Oregon for all those years is that they wanted to play, I believe, in Spokane Arena just because there, was, there were more seats. They could fill more people. But when Gonzaga plays a home-and-home, home, they want to play in their own home arena. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what Duke says. You know, I, I think you certainly have to circle the wagons and, and go after it. Um, but, you know, at the expense of, of playing, you know, I almost would much rather have that neutral and neutral at this point, given how resumes work. 
Yeah, I, I think another thing to think about too is like Mikhail is bigger than McCarthy for sure, but McCarthy's not that much smaller than Cameron. You know, Cameron is really one of the tiniest major program arenas in the country. And for that reason, it's also one of the best, in my opinion. I mean, I, I, I really do think that smaller arenas are better, um, you know, just in, in that you feel like you're more on the court as a fan, no matter where you're at in the arena. Um, you know, and granted, at Cameron, you literally are on the court for that first, what, 1,000, 2,000 people that are in attendance. But, um, you know, I, I think I also I agree that the neutral and neutral thing is kind of cool. Um, it does it at least opens up options for for teams to that maybe you didn't classically want to play at McCarthy to kind of do some sort of a scheduling agreement. But I just really think it would be special for Gonzaga and Duke to have a true home and home. The you know the, this program that's been the the peak blue blood for the last you know thirty plus years. Um, and the program that's kind of on the rise, nipping at the heels of the Blue Bloods. You know, I, I think it would be really cool to see that. What do you think, Stephen? Uh, well, first, going off your last point about Gonzaga Duke, and th- there's enough history there over the last seven years now, um, especially if they end up playing again in, in 2022 in, in Portland. They had a 2015 game. They had the Classic in Maui. Um, you know, the, there's, there's enough history between the two teams over the last several years where you can say, Hey, and obviously Vegas this past year too. Um, so Duke is willing to play at least with coach K they came at least all the way to Vegas on the West coast. Um, but to, to answer Tuck's question, I think true home and homes between major schools are awesome for the sport, but every single NCAA tournament game is played at a neutral site in a large arena, which is why I think, I don't know if what, if this went into coach K's mind when he does what he did, what he did, um, or if it goes into Mark Hughes mind when they kind of make their schedules. But a lot of these schools are playing neutral side games in big arenas for that reason, I think is because that those are the environments that you're going to be playing in come March. Um, you're not going to be playing inside McCarthy athletic center. You're not going to be playing inside Cameron indoor Breslin center, like wherever, so if you can get these two schools to play in Vegas or in Seattle or in South Dakota, although South Dakota is not exactly a massive arena, um, but these neutral sites with two different fan bases um, and, and a different environment that you don't play in and are comfortable with, those are the kind of games that you're going to be playing in March. So in terms of that, I think that actually prepares teams more than playing in you know a 10,000-seat McHale Center. Um, with 10,000 Arizona fans screaming at you. I think that's better for the sport, but I don't know if that necessarily prepares you for uh, March, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, it's you know, it's going to be an interesting thing over these next few years with Shire in charge now at Duke um, to see where, you know, where they're scheduling cha- uh, heads. Obviously, we see something that maybe Coach K wasn't really doing already, um, just, you know, just this offseason announced. Um, but, yeah, it'd be, it's going to be super interesting to see where we head from here. Speaking of uh, 
where we go from here, let's take a look back. Uh, we're in the cool, cool times of, uh, you know, basketball takery. So since we're in July, why not have a little fun? Let's look back, guys. Um, you know, there was that photo shared during Summer League of all the Zags in attendance, uh, both pros and former pros and, and guys like Rem. Um, and, and it started a conversation about basically who – how would the Zags as an NBA team matchup? I'm curious. Post John Stockton, in the modern era of the W or sorry W, uh, in the modern era of the NBA, uh, I will take Courtney Vandersloot as my point guard. Though. Yeah, well, obviously Courtney Vandersloot would be the best Gonzaga pro uh, since John Stockton, and arguably she rivals John Stockton in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm curious. What is your guys' starting five of Zag NBA players, current and former? Let's I'm I'm gonna go ahead and start. Let's you know this this is a really tough question. And I think there's gonna be some overlap between us because you know we granted there's a lot of Zag pros out there, but there's there's a pretty you know clear defined group that's the best of the best so far, at least post Stockton. Um I I got Jalen Suggs as my point guard, and this was this was kind of an interesting um thought process because Dan Dickow was in the league for obviously a longer period of time than Jalen. However, in his rookie season, Jalen put up pretty impressive numbers for, you know, for his first season, um, almost 12 points a game for over four assists a game, three and a half rebounds per game. Um, granted he, he has things he needs to work on. He's going to be, it's going to be a work in progress on his shot, but you know, ultimately, um, his defense is up there already. He's one of the better defending guards in, in the league, in my opinion, at this point. Um, you know, and, and this is where, where the discussion kind of gets a little more interesting for me is, Gonzaga has been labeled guard you by a lot of people for a long time, but there's really not that many standout pros other than John Stockton that have come out as point guards from Gonzaga in the NBA. I want to, I want to get your take, Connor. Who do you think the best point guard is post Stockton out of Gonzaga in the pros? I mean, right now, both looking back and looking at what could be, it, it has to be Suggs. Um, and, I, and I think basketball is unique, right? Because I, I'm on record saying that Gonzaga's big man production or big man development program, you know, over the last 10 to 20 years rivals that of Kansas, Duke, and Kentucky. Um, you could say it might even be better because they take big men that aren't necessarily these five stars and put them into the NBA to be successful. Where the guard you comes from, and I think this is why it's unique to, to, to basketball, is that in college, experienced guard play wins. But you only get to be an experienced guard if you're not necessarily a surefire NBA player. And so... You can develop into that. And obviously there are older guards that have made it into the NBA and, and been successful. But you, if you're a surefire NBA player after your sophomore year, you're most likely gone. Um, very few make it to junior. Very, very few surefire NBA guards make it to their senior year. But Gonzaga churns out a lot of senior guards, which is where I think 
it's different than the NFL because you hear things like Penn State is linebacker you, and that's because Penn State churns out a lot of NFL linebackers. Gonzaga's guard you, point guard you, is because they have had a long history of these experienced point guards coming through their program and not necessarily them churning out, you know, NBA caliber point guards. But Jalen Suggs is my answer. What, what are your thoughts, Stephen? Where, where do you kind of go with the point guard position for, for Zag NBA players? Excuse me. Um, yeah, I also went Jalen Suggs, and I got to give a shout-out to Connor because that was one of the best two- to three-minute diatribes. Is incredibly, incredibly smart and well said. Um, I, I think that the more interesting thing isn't necessarily point guard, but it's off guard. They don't have... I mean, really any off guards that they developed into NBA players um, consistently, I should say. Obviously, there's plenty of people who played in the NBA. Zach Norvell, Ayayi's been there. A lot of these point guards have played off guard in the NBA. I think Jalen Suggs is probably going to end up turning more off ball than he is on ball by the mm-hmm. end of his career. Um, but I, I think that that is the harder thing that I had to choose when I'm choosing a starting five here is, hey, okay. I'll take Jalen Sugg as the point guard, but who am I teaming him up with in the backcourt? And I think that's where I think the hardest part of this exercise was for me. Yeah. Uh, likewise for me, Steven, and that's actually why I have Jalen Suggs as my off guard because I, he played off guard a large amount of time, even in his rookie season. And there's just a glut in Orlando right now of, uh, scoring first, uh, uh, major athletic, good vision, point guards that, that can find their own shot. But we're trying to figure out how the system works with Orlando. And so for me, my point guard was Jeremy Pargo. And the reason my point guard was Jeremy Pargo is nobody dunks like Jeremy Pargo dunks. And probably one of the coolest things ever is when Jeremy Pargo got a top 10 number one overall play and the Cleveland Cavaliers decided let's make this the program cover for the next game and then they decided to trade him like before the game started like get just Jeremy Pargo was a a bright star that was not given the opportunity that I feel like he deserved he ball he still balls out still That's- we hate this pick. I could tell. I could tell by the reaction window. I love the pick. I absolutely love the pick because my off guard was Jeremy Pargo. So whatever <laughs> order you want to put him in, point guard, off guard, whatever. My two guards are Jeremy Pargo and Jalen Suggs. I went back and forth. Originally, I had Dick out with Suggs, um, but I wanted a little bit more explosiveness and defensive ability. Just trying to build a starting five. Um, mm-hmm. And so I ended up going with Pargo over Dickow. That backcourt is going to jump. If you're listening, yeah that that backcourt is going to jump through the roof. Like I've, I, I, I think that that defensive backcourt. I don't know if they'll be able to shoot the ball very well <laughs> from deep. And I think my whole roster is not the greatest three point shooting team, but I think defensively they're going to be fantastic. Definitely. Yeah. It's 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 a good question. Like you said, the off guard position is really hard to kind of nail down. I went a little differently here, and I went with Adam Morrison. He's not really he wasn't a guard, 
granted. I think we, we can all agree he was more of, you know, your prototypical small forward. But he had scoring ability uh, that maybe was unmatched out of any, of any player to ever come out of Gonzaga. Um, and I feel like given the opportunity, granted, he didn't get that, you know, post his rookie season in, in Charlotte, um, thanks to injuries, thanks to just never playing defense, you know, things like thanks that. Thanks to Larry Brown. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it, it's maybe it's more of a what if pick. Like, what if Adam Morrison had been given a chance in the NBA? Would he have ever been, you know, something interesting at that level i feel like he would have been i feel like he could create his own shot as good as a lot of guys that have been you know excelled in the league i think really the big thing for him was just will you know was he did he have the the willpower to continue his career at a certain point and i don't, I don't think he did i think he kind of got his cup of coffee in the league and he made his money and he you know whatever amount that was and he just decided it was it was time. And, you know, it's it's kind of one of those great what if questions, to, in my opinion, for Gonzaga NBA basketball, like players to come out of of the uni to go on to the pros. Like what what if Adam Morrison had been given more of an opportunity? I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Connor? I I cheated along with you, Josh. Um, <laughs> I went the other route, though, the other wing that's currently in the NBA. And I went Corey Kispert. And the reason I did, and I think that over the course of the season, we saw this, he started off Rocky shooting from three. And and that's what he was known for in college. Um, That's what I think he's going to make his money doing in the NBA. He finished the last two months of the season shooting nearly 40%, which is an elite, but it's serviceable. Um, And I'd rather, I'd much rather have the length there uh, if I'm choosing between two un, relatively unathletic players. Um, and, and I know Morrison had length, but I'd rather have also the shooting and the health of, of Corey Kispert uh, than, than Adam Morrison. And I'd rather have the length for, from Kispert um, than maybe more of the athleticism from Pargo or the, I don't want to call him cerebral, but the, the consistency that you could see from Dan Dickow. But yes, I picked a Gonzaga power forward as my shooting guard. So, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and that's that, that, that's a good pick, though, because the, the the other thought that I had was to just go big and basically throw Kispert at like the two and Rui at the three and pick two big guys. Like you could just go with massive size. And I think that would be totally fine as long as you have enough shooting in today's NBA. So I think that's a good pick. Nick Nurse preaches positionless basketball, fellas. This is just a different kind of positionless basketball that is not entirely concerned about the defensive end. We should have picked coaches for this, too. Any NBA coach to coach this group of five. Ooh. Could we go Portland Pilot, former player as a coach? He could. Yeah, that kind of might be my way of thinking there. That'd that'd be a good one. All right, so, talk. who was your... Uh, or you already said your off guard was Jalen Suggs, right? So yeah, yeah. I guess you probably have the best off guard of the bunch, to be fair. So uh, hey, Steve and I have the same backcourt. Yeah, great minds. <laughs> uh, so let's let's talk about wing a little bit. The three. Um, 
you know, I, I feel like this is a pretty clear answer at this point, not because he's solidified himself as the greatest um, NBA player ever or anything yet, but in my opinion, it's Rui. I mean, you're looking at a guy who has, he's, he's evolved a little bit this past season. He showed improved shooting. Um, you know, he's statistically one of the best Zag pros of all time right there, you know, below, just below Domus and, and, you know, probably a, several spots below John Stockton, but um, you know, 13 points a game is nothing to sneeze at. And, you know, I, I think that he has potential, a lot of potential with his athleticism, uh, with his, you know, growing game that in the next few years, he could, he could even be, you know, an even better option at this spot. What do, what do you think, Steven? Great pick. I decided to go with Corey Kispert though. Um, I can't blame you at all. I, I thought about Rui, obviously a bunch. I thought about it at the four spot too, um, but I didn't find a spot for him on my roster only because I wanted more three-point shooting. And I was trying to, this is the, the coach in me, I guess, but I was trying to build like a full balanced roster, great defensively in the backcourt. And then I needed a wing who could shoot off of two guards who just relentless, relentlessly drive the basketball. And so for me, that was Corey Kispert. And I still think Kispert, can catch the ball from 27 or 30 feet and drive it to the rim more than Rui does. Rui is obviously great catching at 16 and doing a rip and drive from mid range, but he's not necessarily a guy who's going to take you out from 27 feet and drive off the bounce yet. Um, so that's why I went with Kispert uh, at my three spots. So I've got Suggs, Pargo and Kispert so far on my roster. What do you think, Connor? Where, where are you leaning at for the three spot? I mean, since I put Kispert at the two, I went with Rui at the, the three as well. Um, gives you the athleticism that my team is desperately needing on the wing. Um, and, and he's proven that when he's on the court, he is he is a very solid NBA player. Um, you know, I considered going a little bit more, in, leaning a little bit more into the bigs and bringing in a, a guy like Brandon Clark to play the three. Um, but I feel like what Rui provides, especially in the NBA, um, is something that the team needs a little bit more than maybe the Brandon Clark kind of undersized four can provide. Um, so Stephen and I are three for three so far. Um, I picked Corey Kispert as well, just because as Stephen mentioned, you need that shooting or the addition of shooting. And I think that Jalen and Jeremy would take care of a lot of the defensive deficiencies or concerns you have about Corey. Uh, though, though he actually looked pretty decent on defense at times his rookie season. So he's definitely shown the ability to adapt to, to a higher speed. Um, I thought about, having Chet in this position a little bit just because I thought that he would be an interesting little wrinkle. Uh, but this is also like the the number one position when this topic came up on Twitter that I was like super confused about of uh, how the hell would you find a small forward that could guard the likes of LeBron, that could guard the likes of Paul George or Kawhi Leonard or anyone on that Raptors team? Um, on, uh, from these Gonzaga grads, and, and it's tough. I mean, there's, there's, uh, is, there seems to be some distinct play styles that these Gonzaga graduates or alums have, and and I think Corey does does the best to to add at multiple levels to what's already established on this roster for me. So I went with him. 
Yeah, and you know, Rui's got the size. He's the only really he's one of the only guys that has the agility and the size and athleticism to to blossom into that potential stopper, but he's not yet there defensively. He doesn't really have that acumen. Um and, and to your point, yeah, Corey's got great shooting, but man, Rui shot 45% from three this year. I know that's an aberration so far in his career, but if he even settles you know, five or 6% South of that, that's pretty impressive, you know, and, and I think that goes a long way to uh, extending his, you know, career and um, gives him, you know, more fluidity to his game. And and hopefully, yeah, maybe, maybe we're given a, a full off season coming up here where he's not dealing with off the court issues um, can maybe focus on training can focus on, you know, getting, a little bit better on defense. He can become that better all-around player that we all hope to see Rui become. Steven, this is a question for you, uh, just with your coaching background. How difficult is it to coach up defensive like IQ? Is that something that's more innate, like recognition-wise? Or is that something you can like kind of dig into a guy? Uh, typically, IQ is something that is just inherently in somebody. Um, you can try to teach as much of it as possible in terms of your, um, your team schemes saying, Hey, you know, when X happens, A, B, and C are the potential options. This is, this is what you should be reading. But for the most part, it's like either you have really, really good defensive instincts or you don't, um, obviously you can do certain things to try to increase those instincts as a coach, but, um, you can tell you know, week two of practice who has legitimate defensive instincts and who doesn't. Um, and you kind of try to put players in the certain spots uh, based off of those instincts and, and IQ. Yeah. I think, I think it's interesting too, because I think Rui's shown flashes in the past. There's been moments where you've seen him be able to, to do that, but it, it's putting it together, you know, long-term. Does he have that, tenacity does he have that built in is is he him i don't know um so let's let's move on to the four spot and i think this is where it really opens up and we can get creative a little bit with where we see uh you know our our rosters going i personally went brandon clark because i feel like brandon clark is the he's the prototypical like energizer bunny. He's the guy who has already proven that he can do things in the playoffs that um, really like, you know, that's, that's really, in my opinion, one of the biggest reasons why Memphis did what they did this year, which was, you know, go relatively far. Um, And he, he also worked his way out of the coach's doghouse, if we will, from two seasons ago and kind of found his way back into favor um, I, I just love that kind of like, you know, underdog story that he brings to the, the table. What do you think, Steven? Is this something where you went a little bit more prototypical for, or, or do you like Brandon there as well? Uh, I love Brandon Clark. I think it, it all depends on who else is on your roster. For me, the thing that I was trying to do is balance the two big guys that I had. They can play together on both ends of the court. So like, if you're trying to pick like, Brandon Clark and Roni Turry off together. Like, I don't think that that's going to fit very well offensively. Um, like it could be great defensively. I don't think they're great offensively. So I tried to, you know, have a balance between the two bigs that I chose and there's just 
a ridiculous number of them over the last 20 years that you can choose from. So it's very difficult, but because Pargo and Suggs for me aren't great shooters, I wanted somebody who could shoot the basketball. So I chose Chet Holmgren as my four. Um, he could play five defensively, whatever he wants to do, but he on offense, I think he's going to be the four that stretches the court. And then who I have at my five will be the actual five that, you know, plays more in the interior and is more in ball screens and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for me, I chose Chet Holmgren as my four. Tuck, if you chose Chet, you're four for four. And if you did, then we're going to have to discuss and choose somebody different as our fifth. All right. I, you, let's, let's wait on and hear what Tuck did after Connor, because this, we need to build the suspense a little bit. Connor, who is your four? Yeah, I, I went in with the same th- uh, mindset as Steven. Um, really want to balance the two forwards. You don't want them kind of clogging up the paint too much. Um, which, which given the amount of bigs that Gonzaga has is, is a real issue. Um, I went with a guy who size says that he's a five, but play style, you can play him at the four, um, can really stretch the ball. Interestingly enough, you could argue he's the best pro Gonzaga or best pro career (laughs) Gonzaga has had out of the program since John Stockton. I went with Kelly Olenek, um, he can stretch the floor. He's been one of the most consistent players out of the Zags program in the pros since Stockton. Um, you know, not going to be this great rebounder, shot blocker defensively, but I don't think my team is going much for defense anyways. Um, and so I, I went with, you know, another guy who not necessarily that athletic, but given what I want on offense from that four position, uh, I feel comfortable with Olinick. I would have gone Chet. Um, but I just don't know what Chet has, well, I don't know what Chet will do in the NBA. And so I went with the, the known quantity in Olenek. All right. Drum roll, please. Let's present ourselves with is, is Tuck going to match Steven four for four? So, well, this is complicated because I didn't pick Chet to be my four. He's my five. Oh, Um, so spoilers on that. Chet Holmgren is my five. Uh, I think that Chet is going to be able to adapt to the NBA game. I think that he's going to be able to figure out a way to, outside of, yes, the freaks like Giannis and Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic. Like, yeah, he's going to have to figure out a way to like not get in foul trouble with those guys. But I think ultimately everyone has trouble with those guys. Those are the the top three of the top five players in the NBA, arguably. Um my four, however, because I've liked Chet to stretch with Corey. I like that idea of those two dudes on the perimeter. and uh, Corey as a cutter and Chet's ability to play at multiple levels of the offense and pass. My four is DeMontis bonus because I think DeMontis and Chet work incredibly well together. Chet covers up a lot of the weaknesses that DeMontis has on the uh, defensive end. And DeMontis is going to be great at deal at bodying and taking care of bigs down low on offense. And especially if we have Jalen and Jeremy attacking the basket on my team, I'm going to need somebody that has a great mid range game. And DeMontis uh, last year was averaging almost 14 points a game in the mid range. Like the dude's money. So being able to score three levels on my team was important to me and having a little bit of symbiosis between the front court and the back court, as well as the front court pairing. So I went with Domas at the four and Chet at the five. Well, and that's a good segue. So 
I have a feeling that you guys might have matched five for five just in slightly different roles or positions. What do you say, Stephen? Is Domus your five? Five for five, baby. I don't oh know. Oh boy. If, if I, I feel so off. smart, Stephen. Thank you. <laughs> I don't you. know if I cheated off of Tuck or if Tuck was reading my notes, but one of the two happened. Um, but no, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of the similar points that you just made and, and Sabonis and I mean, we'll see what Chet does in the NBA, but I think he has the ability to become this um, just in a different fashion, I guess. But Sabonis is an elite pick and roll guy. And if you're going to have Chet be kind of a pick and pop guy, Sabonis can be that pick and roll um, either as a hard roll or a short roll and operate in that mid range area. Like you were just talking about, um, you can run a lot of roll and replace action with Sabonis and Holmgren. Um, and then I mean, you got two really, really explosive guards coming off of ball screens to have two guys who are completely different in what they can do off of ball screens. Um, and you can even have, I mean, Sabonis is a great passer too. So you can have Sabonis coming off a roll and Chet Holmgren in that dunker spot um, that they use so much in the NBA. I think you can do a lot of really, really good stuff um, on the offensive end. And then defensively, Pargo and Suggs just getting into guys on the perimeter. And then you've got basically Chet Holmgren there at the rim to, to kind of clean up any mess that, that may be caused. Um, I think that that balance that Tuck and I have on our roster um, is pretty good. Connor, who do you have at your five? I mean, I also went with Sabonis. Um, like, like Steven said, when you, when you balance a guy like, Kelly Olynyk and Kelly Olynyk might be a little bit less of a pick and pop guy than Chet, but still can shoot the three, can score effectively inside. But he's not Sabonis when it comes off to offensively. I, I understand my roster. You're really relying a lot on Suggs to win the defensive battle at the point of attack before it gets to any of the other players on the floor. Um, but you know the balance offensively and the ability to attack anywhere on the floor with the five guys I have, I'm pretty comfortable with. I mean, Kelly Olenek had the whole city of Detroit last year cursing his name because he cost them a draft pick single-handedly. So I think that's a great pick. This after averaging 19 points a game in his brief stint with the Houston Rockets. So, <laughs> Yeah, I, I love Kelly Olenek. And I think in the right opportunity, like he could be even better than he's been thus far. As we saw with Houston, granted, that Houston team was absolutely terrible. Um, but I I went with Sabonis also. I mean, in my opinion, I know you said Olenek might have the best pro career of any Zag since John Stockton, but I think it's I think it's Domus at this point. He's got multiple all-stars. Um, you know, he's he's transformed his game uh to something that I don't think any of us really ever saw it becoming when he came out of Gonzaga. And I think he's blossoming and he's becoming even more, um, you know, somebody who potentially could stretch the floor a little bit more. He's spending a lot of time training every year on his outside shot. And I think it's just, he's getting more and more confident with that uh, year by year. And I, and, you know, like we all said, um, you know, Brandon Clark is such the defender that it would allow Sabonis some of his deficiencies on that end um, to be kind of shored up. And, you know, he's not necessarily going to be held as accountable maybe for some of those things. And, um, you know, I, I just think, I think Sabonis is, is an amazing leader as well, which is something that 
any of these teams would need to have somebody who could really just, um, you know, lead the way, help these, some of the young guys uh, like Jalen, or if you have Corey on your roster, um, you know, get, get past that hump and become the best pros they could possibly be. So absolutely. Don't miss. He's, he's the, he's the best Zeg five. If this is all right with you guys, uh, just, we get a little bit of parody between Steven and I, Let's do a six man. Are you guys comfortable with doing a six man pick? Do you want yeah. to do a six man Let's pick? Let's go with it. Okay. Uh, you can top. go first, Josh. Okay. Off the top. Um, hmm. You know, so we, I didn't really think about the fact of choosing a rookie when I went into this. I was kind of going more off of, um, you know, guys who have been there, done that, kind of showed a little bit in the league at this point. Um, so I'm going to go with Andrew Nemhard as my sixth man. And that's because I feel like a lot of really good teams in the league at this point have exceptional backup point guard play. Um, I'm, I'm looking at you, Memphis, with, with Jones as your kind of first off the bench backup point guard. Um, and I think that Nemhard could be that guy. And I also really love the potential there as well. Like if, if ammo is not doing what you need at the two spot, Maybe you slide Jalen over to the two and you put uh, Nemby over at the point and, you know, rekindle some of that 2020, 21 love. Um, so, yeah, Nemby's my guy. How about uh, you, Connor? Oh, geez, this is hard. Um, I can't go Clark because I need another guard. I need a second guard. Um, and it's easier to rotate the Kispert uh, through, I guess, through really through Sabonis that, that you can move Kispert to the three, you can move Rui to the four, you can move Kelly Olenek or Sabonis in at the five spot. Um, I'm going to use the same logic that I used when I picked Olenek over Chet. Um, and I am going to go with Pargo uh, over um, Andrew Nemhard and, and over Dickow um, for the reasons that they stated earlier, you know, I just, I just need that second guard that I can, I, I can run at the one or the two, depending on where I need them. Um, and, uh, I feel like Pargo gives you the most, you know, kind of bounce and, and, and athleticism at that position. And, um, while he doesn't necessarily give me much more on the defensive end than I, than I already don't have, um, I, I like him in that spot as the second guard. Okay, Steven, go ahead and give me yours so I can figure out what mine is. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like we should just blurt our answers out at the same time. Just count to three. I think you should. <laughs> do it. Yeah, blurt them at the same time. All right, Josh, give us a countdown. All right, here we go. Three, two, one. Randy Rui. Clark. Oh, okay. some differentiation. Yeah, I, uh, those are the two that I was kind of going in between, Rui and Brandon. So I'll, I go Rui just because I think it gives a – this roster, the most lineup flexibility. Um, you could put him in at the three, slide Corey Kispert to the two, or you can put him in at the four because I think he would pair, pair well with um, Sabonis at the five, or you can move Chet to the five and play Rui and Chet together. Um, so I think he gave me more lineup flexibility than uh, Brandon Clark did, and I think Rui does more offensively than Brandon does as well. Yeah, I, I was thinking between Rui, Brandon, and I, I kind of love the idea of having a vet like Rony Turioff. Like, I, I mean, LeBron doesn't get those rings, honestly, down in South Beach if Rony Turioff isn't on that team. But I just imagine, like, how dispirited another team would be, like, if Chet were to sub out of a game and then Brandon Clark comes in. Like, you're like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, still, still got an entire 
plate over the rim. No, no luck today. But yeah, I, I feel like I feel like Brandon Clark is just perfect in that six man role currently. Uh, he, he he does incredible things at the, as a six seven guy. Um, so yeah, I, I that Gonzaga's front court talent is just so deep now, which is just awesome to see. Yeah, I, I think that um, over these next few years, um, we're going to start seeing maybe some more of the guard talent creep up and catch up with that front court a little bit, which would be fun. It's going to be nice to see maybe somebody like Hunter or, um, you know, Nolan or potentially, you know, Dusty or one of the future guards, like slide into the NBA and become uh, just solidify that role even more for us. Um, I really want to thank uh, Steven. Uh, and Connor both for coming in and hanging with us tonight on the show. Um, you can find Connor's work at um, Heat Check College Basketball and as well as the Hope and Rauf uh, or Roth, I still can't pronounce his last name, uh, podcast. And uh, Steven, obviously, you know, you guys know his work. He's been around for a long time in, in Zag Twitter and um, you can find him at SCAR Go on Twitter. Um, and uh, appreciate you guys for your time. Yeah, it's, it's always a pleasure to be on and uh, good to be talking about basketball in any way we can during the months of July through, what, September, when there's not really much going on. We're approaching only 100 days until tip-off. Slowly but surely, we're getting there. We we passed we passed the midway point. We're we're crossing the threshold, fellas. You just gave me goosebumps, man. 